hey you, what you got in your pocket? Those words froze me in my tracks, and I knew I was busted. I grew up in a small town. There were three stoplights in my town. Two of those uh, intersections weren't even four-way intersections. We weren't even big enough to have four-way intersections. We had two three-way stops and one four-way intersection. And at the corner of one of those intersections sat a family-owned uh, convenience store gas station called Roy's Service Center. Garrett remembers Roy's. We grew up in the same small town. Well, we all knew Roy. That's how small the town was. And one night, it was a, a crisp fall Friday night. I was young. I don't even think I was in middle school yet, but I snuck out of the local high school football game with my brother and some of his friends to walk to Roy's. I knew that my brother and his friends were walking to Roy's with the intention of engaging in a five-finger discount of some sort because none of us had any money, and I wanted in on it. And so I tagged along. My, my brother must have seen it in my eyes in the store. Maybe I was looking a little shifty, nervously walking around the store because he came up to me and he said, you better not steal anything. I said, why not? He said, because the clerk has been watching you the whole time. I'm like, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. I got this. I brushed him off. And sure enough, as I walked out of the store into the crisp fall air, the sounds of that distant high school football game were muted out by, hey, you, what you got in your pocket? I was numb. The store owner gave me the uh, tortuous, tortuous decision of, do you want me to call the cops or your parents? I thought long and hard about that one. I finally figured out that even if they called the cops, they would, the cops would have to call my parents. So I went with my mom and dad. They came and picked me up, and I was in a whole heap of trouble. I wasn't a Christian then, uh, but I had a guilty conscience over that for about the next eight or ten years until I became a Christian. Uh, I, anytime somebody would mention stealing around me, I, I felt like the whole room would shrink and everybody was staring at me. We'd be in the living room watching a TV show as a family or a movie as a family and something would be mentioned about somebody stealing and I would start to sweat I don't even know if anybody else in the room was even still thinking about it, but I felt all eyes on me. I was overcome with grief and shame and guilt, not a godly guilt that led me to repentance, but a deep-seated shame over getting caught in a small town and so many people knowing about it. You know what it was? You know what I stole? You know what I went through all of that trouble for? A pack of bubblicious bubblegum. Now, as ridiculous as that story is, and it is ridiculous and embarrassing, I have a question that I want to ask each of you this morning. I want you to consider your own, hey you, what you got in your pocket. What if we're not all as above reproach as we think we are in this area? What if, like with adultery and like with murder, there are ways to violate the Eighth Commandment without even realizing it. What if we all have hearts that want to grasp and take what isn't ours and to clutch on what we should 
gladly give to others. Well, friends, that's what we'll just, uh, look at this morning in God's Word. We are in Exodus chapter 20. If you're new with us this morning, we're going through a series in the Ten Commandments. We find ourselves looking at the Eighth Commandment this morning, you shall not steal. And as we look at that, I mean, that's my argument this morning. I want us to see that you shall not steal because you need not steal. There going to be things that we see about who God is and about what he has provided, about who we are, that remind us that we shall not steal because we need not steal. As you turn to Exodus chapter 20, if you want to make your way there, we'll be in other passages as well, so it would be helpful to have a copy of God's word in front of you and open We've been looking at all of these Ten Commandments through the same kind of three-point outline. Each of the commandments are revelation, each of the commandments are confrontation, and each of the commandments are instruction. Because each of the commandments, or any command that you ever have from God, is doing all three of those things at once. It's, it's, uh, It's revealing something about who God is, it's confronting us on who we are, and it's instructing us in a way of obedience. The three questions that we're asking and answering in these Ten Commandments sermons are... Uh, What kind of God would give this command? Point number one, what kind of God would give this command? Number two, what kind of people would need this commanded of them? What kind of people would need this commanded? And then third, what does obedience to this command look like? What does obedience to this command look like? Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. The text is simple. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Well, what kind of a God would command this of his people? Well, I want us to see it's a God who is generous, it's a God who is just, and it's a God who is self-sufficient. A God who is generous, a God who is just, and a God who is self-sufficient. So first, the God who commands us to not steal is a God who is or is a God who is generous. We, we need not take because he gives everything that we need. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God is a good and benevolent and giving God. He delights to give. God does not withhold from us wrongly. He can be trusted as a good heavenly father who gives good gifts. So when you hear the command, you shall not steal, realize that behind that is a a God who is generous, who delights to give, and who overflows with abundant blessings for his people. Second, the God who commands us not to steal is a God who is just. A God who is just. He gives this command because he, he, he doesn't want any of his children to be defrauded. He is a God who would safeguard us against those who would want to come in and rob from us and steal from us. So this command is to us to not go out and to steal from other people, but it's also a a command that protects us from being stolen from and robbed by others. It's a God who is just, who would give this command. He wants to protect us from those who would rob us or do us harm. And listen, this is a topic that God takes very seriously. We have but a brief word here in chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. But the law, if you keep reading in Exodus, will go into incredible detail on just what constitutes theft, how thieves are to be punished, how to go about making restitution. And in the case of of theft, uh, Leviticus chapter 2, 
uh, is, a, is a, a great cross-reference to write down. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Leviticus uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned, now I just want you to pause there and just note all of the things that Moses rattles off there. He doesn't say, hey guys, just so you know, if somebody steals something, here's, here's, here's what to do. It's, it's, first of all, God takes it seriously. It is, is first described in verse 2 as a breach of faith against the Lord. You steal from somebody else, you rob somebody else. It, that's, that's not just an issue of what you're doing with somebody else. You, you've broken trust with God. There's a sense in which you are distrusting a God who is both generous and is just, a God who gives and a God who protects, and, and you're breaking faith with him, verse 2, and, and then he just rattles off all these things, deceiving his neighbor in a matter of a deposit or a security, through robbery, or if you've oppressed your neighbor in some way, or if you found something lost and then lied about it, or if you've sweared falsely, any of those things, and any of all, uh, of all these things that the people do and sin thereby, picking it back up in verse 4, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom uh, it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So it has right there in the text, I mean, this is something God takes seriously as laws that detail this. And you notice right there the, the deal about oppression. Later in Deuteronomy, uh, it, it is going to be against God's law to steal people. Slavery, and the punishment there is death. You steal somebody, you enslave somebody, and the punishment is death. And so God, on this topic of you shall not, it is an incredibly serious thing. There's tons of ink spilled in the law to detail what to do in these types of situations. So I just want you to see a God who says you shall not steal is a God who, who is both generous. He, he gives us everything that, that we could possibly need. Every good gift comes down from him. And he's a God who's just. He wants to protect us from being stolen from. He's just in that way. And then the third one is that the God who commands us not to steal is a God who is self-sufficient. I want you to think about that. A God who was needy or lacking or a God who had un satiated emotions or desires or appetites wouldn't be a giving God but a taking God that's why all the world religions are 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 full of gods who demand and and who uh, require these things in order to earn their favor to be in right standing before them They, they, they are needy they take they take they take that's not our God our God is self-sufficient if our God were 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 not self-sufficient he would need to look out for number one He would need to look out for himself, and therefore he wouldn't overflow with blessing and benevolence and abundance. Now, the God who says don't steal is the God who needs nothing and therefore overflows in every possible way in blessing to his people. So I just want us to gaze at God's glory for a minute to see what is lying behind this command to not steal. It's really, you shall not steal is a message. It's a billboard. It's revelation about who God is and what his character is like. He doesn't need, rather he gives and he protects. Jesus is the anti-thief. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief 
comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus then says, I have come to give abundant life. That, that, that idea of Jesus as giver of abundant life stands in contrast against the thief. The thief comes in, in the context there in the passage, he's talking about his sheep. And Jesus is, the, is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep and watches over them and gives abundant life to all of his flock. Not like the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We're seeing what God's, uh, uh, the character of a God who is the giver of abundant life and protects us in every way. And then you could think towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these wonderful, hopeful words. This is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one uh, who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is our God. And whatever way, church, that you feel like you might be lacking in life, the, we, we steal because we think there's something that we don't have that we need and we want to take it, or some, something that somebody else has that we want. In whatever way that you think you're lacking in life, God is not out to get you. God is not wanting to punish you or wanting to withhold from you or to be mean to you. No, he's good and he's trustworthy. Now listen, I, I don't know everything that you're trusting God for in this season of your life. And even this consideration is, it can maybe be a painful thing for you. You might be trusting God for things or desiring something that's good and important to you. So it's not always easy, but we wait on the Lord, believing that he loves us and he knows us even better than we know ourselves. Well, how do we know? How do we know that he's trustworthy? You know how Israel knew, the, the people who were getting this commandment, you know how they knew? Well, on one hand, it's an act of faith, right? It's an act of faith to believe that God will be good on his promises. But their faith was also based on the fact that God had proven himself to them over and over and over and over again. And the way that he heard them and the way that he delivered them from Egypt and the way that he led them through the Red Sea and the way that he provided for them, the way that he called his people out of this land of slavery. And, and then, uh, and again, before he gave them this law to obey, he freed them and he saved them. It wasn't obey this law and then I'll love you and save you. It was no freedom, salvation, love. Now here's how you live before me. And before he did all of that, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, he said, this will be your sign. It's a weird sign. He said, this will be your sign. You will one day worship me and serve me on this mountain. Isn't that a weird sign? Like, I'd rather, like, God just spell it out in cloud writing or something. Like, give me. No, he says, this is your sign. You got to wait till it's all over. <laughs> we always want our sign right now. God says, no, no, this will be your sign. I'll save you, and you'll look back and realize, look how good God was to us. And friends, that's the exact same promise that we have in Christ. How do we know that this God is good and benevolent and loving rather than withholding and stealing or shortchanging us? How do we know that? Well, he gave. He gave. He gave more than anybody could ever imagine and more than we could ever deserve. He gave his son that we might have everything we truly need. God doesn't just say, don't, don't steal. Trust me, take my word for it. No, our God gives. And if he loves us enough to give us his son, how much more will he give us all things? This is literally what Paul says at the, at the end of Romans chapter 8. 
So many of us have, have memorized Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and rightly so, it's a great verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Isn't that great? Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So even as you're waiting on something and you don't have what you think you want, that's a great verse to remember. Everything works out for good. God's not going to waste anything. God's going to use all of this. God is good. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. But church, don't stop reading. Romans 8.32, John Piper in his book on providence, big book came out a couple years ago, he, he says that Romans, he calls Romans 8.32 the, best, uh, the, the most important verse in the Bible. It could be hyperbole, I don't know, maybe he says otherwhere, elsewhere that there's other important verses. But Romans 8.32 says this, he says, because it, it is what undergirds, it is the foundation for all the other promises of God. Listen, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for the good of those who love God? How do we know that's true? Keep reading. Romans 8.32 says, God, who gave us his son, how will you not also with him give us all things that we need? So when we come to this command, do not steal, we are meant to see a God who is good, who is generous, who is just. We're meant to see a God who is self-sufficient. We are meant to see a God and be reminded of a God who doesn't steal from us, but would give us so that we need not take anything because he's given us everything we could possibly need in Jesus. And we just need to trust him. So that's what kind of a God would command this? What kind of a God would command this? Question number two that I think we need to ask and answer and consider is, is what kind of people would need this command? Uh, Garrett's pastoral prayer was phenomenal. It was actually my entire second point. So just skip ahead with me. Question number three. We'll go ahead. No, just kidding. It was, I mean, it was, the things he prayed about are there's all these ways. I hope you were praying that prayer along with him as he was praying that because there's so many ways that we, that we take and we grasp and we reach out without even realizing it. So the answer to that question of what kind of people would need this command, it's those who, need to, those who are prone to distrust God's provision and disregard our neighbor. So who needs to hear this? Those who distrust God's provision and those who disregard our neighbor we who are prone to rob others we who will be unfair to each other we who will take what isn't ours we who have grasping tendencies in our hearts that want to reach out and clutch on to what god hasn't given us or clutch on to what god has given somebody else for ancient Israel, the command to not steal seemed most commonly to be a command against literal theft of property and things. So I, th I think we may take this command at face value as well. Actually, the Leviticus 6 passage that we turned to earlier talks about, you know, if you steal something, restore it and then add a fifth to it. Again, so it was easy to figure out because it was, it was theft. Oh, you, you stole, you know, so many head of cattle or you, you, you return that cattle and add a fifth to it. You, you stole this much money, well, you return that much money and you add a fifth, this many crops or grains or whatever it is, you would restore that and add a fifth to it. And so we may likewise start, I think, with just the, the face value of this command that if anybody in here is currently in a season where, or uh, uh, and having in their life uh, theft or robbery in some way, just literally of stealing of things, of, of stealing from your parents, of stealing. Uh, stealing money in some way, that the, the command there for us is to confess that 
and to turn from that and to repent and, and, and come clean to everybody necessary regarding that theft and that robbery. But for, for I would think, for, and, and there may be some in here, and so that, that's, just take that at face value, but for the rest of us, there, there are other ways that, again, I think we may be, be guilty of violating the eighth, eighth commandment without even thinking about it. I have five categories here that I think are helpful. There's so many. If you read literature on this, I mean, I, I, I had a list of probably 30 different examples of ways that we steal uh, and ways that we are stolen from. I'm, I'm going to give you kind of five categories. Uh, number one is stealing from work. Stealing from work. I think you, you, you have employers who will steal from their employees in some ways of, of being unfair toward them, of not giving pay for work that is done. But maybe even more uh, prominent than that, or, or certainly more prominent that, than that, is, is uh, uh, stealing uh, employees who are stealing from their company or their, or their business or their organization. According to one recent study, 75% of employees admit stealing from their employer at least once. 75% admit to stealing at least once. Approximately 95% of businesses are affected by employee theft. On average, 5% of an organization's revenue is lost to employee theft each year. Here's the big number. Employee theft costs employers $50 billion annually. $50 billion annually to employee theft. Recent estimates from the U.S. Department of Commerce attribute 30% of all business failures, 30% of all business failures to dishonest acts of employees. Internal theft occurs at a rate 15 times higher than external losses. Internal theft, 15 times higher than external losses. Those are staggering numbers. That happens through uh, inventory shrinkage, it happens through tools disappearing and supplies going missing. It happens through dishonest clocking in and clocking out or whatever that system looks like. It happens when someone fudges the numbers on their expense report or cheats on their per diem uh, system while traveling. It also happens through time. One workplace consultant has estimated that fantasy football costs employers upwards of $16 million annually, or no, per, well, per season, that's not, even, that's not even a year. $16 million fantasy football costs employers and lost productivity per season. Studies also show how it's a camaraderie builder. Uh, and so employee, employers are like, eh, it's kind of a, I don't know if that's worth $16 million, but it aids in employee retention, some people argue. And that's just fantasy football. Imagine other fantasy sports and social media platforms and YouTube. How many hours and how many millions of dollars are lost due to employee Productivity. Now, I'm not saying that every paperclip that's ever made it into your pocket is a violation of the Eighth Commandment or an affront to God. Some of us have jobs where bosses don't mind if we watch a video or check social media as long as the work is getting done. So my point here isn't to give conviction where none should exist, but I do think it's worth us considering because it is a massive, massive issue in our country of theft from work. I asked a, a friend this week uh, who has worked uh, for the government 
um, and uh, worked uh, uh, for the, the U.S. military. And I just, I just asked him, I was like, hey, can you think of any examples of ways that people in your experience have stolen um, from, from the government or from the military? And he, he thought for a second, so I thought it was going to be a short conversation. 30 minutes later, he was still rattling off things and ways that people steal. Uh, this guy used to be in the Air Force, and he said that even <laughs> pilots will even, as they're on a flight, will, will kind of dip into a combat area and back out so that they can write that they, so that their flight was, is written up for combat pay. Even though they didn't face any combat, but they'll just kind of dip in just so the government will have to give them that amount of money for combat pay. So listen, <laughs> we're very crafty. And the ways that we steal from work happens all the time. Number two, stealing from school. Stealing from school. I'll mention one for the students here. We don't typically think of cheating or plagiarism as theft, but that's what it really is. As Garrett prayed through this at the beginning or in the pastoral prayer, it's a, that's the heart behind it. It's taking something that doesn't belong to us. We receive grades on tests that we don't deserve because we stole answers from someone or somewhere else. We receive grades on papers that we don't deserve because we plagiarize the ideas from somewhere. Maybe whole degrees and diplomas are built on the false edifice of someone else's work. A recent study by Stanford University claims that between 75 and 98% of college students, 75 to 98% of college students admitted to cheating at least once in their academic careers. If you remember here at, uh, at our church, you, you've actually heard one of our church members uh, recently share a story about that uh, uh, and during their, their current tenure at, at university about realizing that they had cheated on, on some of their work and, and went and confessed it to, uh, to, to the professor. And it was just like mind blown. Like, why are you telling me this right now? I, I think it's a thing that, 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 that people realize students do all the time. But, but for somebody to come and say, listen, as a Christian, I'm convicted of this. And I want to turn and I want to repent and I want to come and say, I, I, I stole that, that, that wasn't my grade, that wasn't my paper, and I did it anyway, and I need to confess that. Whenever we do things like that, we're putting a lot on the line, but that's what God requires of us. That's what God calls us to. That's what faithfulness looks like. I talked to, I was telling you that a, a conversation with a government employee who mentioned that it's a temptation. Uh, yeah, let me hold on to that one for a second. That's, that study by Stanford University, that, that it, it, it shows how deep and how dark the problem is and how we, if we will walk and follow Christ, how utterly uh, how utterly countercultural that will be for everybody around us. It does not make sense because it's so pervasive that any of us would come clean and, and do that and, and come before somebody and, and admit that fault and show that that's what it looks like to follow Christ. But that's what we must do. Stealing from work, stealing from school, stealing from government. This is where I was about to go. Stealing from government. Lack of, of honesty on your tax returns. This is tax season currently. Receiving government funds unnecessarily, being physically and legally able to work but unwilling to do so, frivolous lawsuits that cost taxpayer money, insurance fraud, which, which may or may not be government related, but, but it seems related uh, here in the sense of, of kind of a large nebulous entity, even outside of government insurance, that's, that's a, a always getting 
you know, thinking about people always getting money from me, and so I feel justified in taking a little bit back from the insurance company. A number of years ago, when I was, uh, I was in seminary and uh, had no money, actually negative money, we, when Kim and I did our, our, uh, our budget, we were always in the red. God somehow miraculously provided meals. I don't know how it happened. Anyway, I drove a, a Jeep Wrangler at the time, and people would always come and slice my window. I had the plastic windows on the side, and they were always slicing my window and rooting uh, through. We were in not a great apartment complex uh, to where I, I put a sign in my window. Eventually, I was just like, the door's unlocked. Like, just come in. Look around. It's, it's like, I'm, stop slicing my windows. It's expensive. Uh, but we, uh, one time, a thief came and, and sliced my window and took my stereo and, and all this stuff. And the, the police officer came. And I had also had, uh, I'd taken a, a rock uh, to the windshield and had a, a cracked windshield. And the police officer came and, uh, and he said, hey, look, you know, as he's writing up the report, he says, it looks like the thief broke your window too. And I was like, no, he, no, that was there already. He said, let, let me say that again. It looks like the thief broke your window. And I said, I hear you. It was already like that. <laughs> but, but the temptation is there to tell you, you can just kind of fudge a little bit. And actually, there's a police officer telling me to do this, to go the opposite direction of what the what word of God is telling me to do. Again, there's a temptation toward apathy, toward government resources. My friend was telling me uh, there's an apathy toward, toward government resources because the, there's a culture of mismanagement. There's a culture of frivolous spending. That's the norm. And the bigger the system is, the easier it is to justify. So those who work for the government or work for a politician in here or work for the military, realize that that temptation for you is going to be so strong because the system's so large, nobody's going to use it. There's all kinds of mismanagement. It's still theft. Number four, stealing entertainment. Stealing from work, number one. Stealing from school, number two. Stealing from government, number four. Stealing entertainment. As staggering as those numbers are for work and school, this one seems to be more of an issue in the 21st century through online streaming of movies and music, purchasing illegal internet, TV access. Here's where our justifications are a little more heated. I just encourage you as something that I think Tim Keller once said, that the sin that you get the most defensive over is probably the one that God wants you to work on. For Israel, stealing was hard to do, it was easy to recognize, and the punishment was stiff, right? Hard to do, easy to recognize, really stiff punishment. Stealing entertainment is the exact opposite of all three of those. So think about it, you're in Israel and you steal somebody's cow. I imagine it's really easy to recognize, right? I got this cow. Uh, easy to, it's easy to recognize, it's hard to do. I, I think stealing a cow would not be a, a super simple thing. Hard to do, and then the penalty was really, really stiff had harsh penalties. Stealing entertainment is the exact opposite of that. Really easy to do. Really hard to recognize. And the penalty? Does, it, does anybody even care? I'll go find a cop right now. Hey, illegally streamed a movie last night. And you're like, get out of here. What are you talking about? Right? So, so, so this, it, we, we have to realize that, 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 that today for us, it, it, this is easy to justify, easy to do. Nobody even cares. Everybody's doing it. So today, illegally attaining entertainment online is, is fast and easy, and nobody will ever know. But we must be careful and vigilant here. Are you stealing entertainment in any way, and how are you justifying it? There's always justifications that come along with it. 
Number five, stealing from God. Stealing from God. Perhaps the most famous passage for this is one that we see in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, you can turn there if you want. Last book in your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? So God has this charge against Israel that they are actually stealing from him. They are robbing from him. And, 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 and they're like, how are we doing that? We don't see that. How are we robbing you? Verse 8, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and then pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not, uh, it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine of the field shall not uh, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. How in the world could we possibly steal from God? God says that we can steal from him and not giving him what is appropriate in our offerings. The theology here is this, God owns our money. It's his, it's not ours. His people are to support his work. Now, New Testament believers aren't, aren't required to tithe. That's an Old Testament, Old Covenant reality. And we're not required to tithe or literally to give a tenth of our, of our income. It's a great place to start. We're not required to do that. But we are required to give to support the ministry where the word of God is ministered to us. Our uh, statement of faith actually spells this out. Or I'm sorry, our church covenant says this. We will cheerfully and regularly contribute to the support of the ministry, the needs of the church, and the relief of the poor. Something all of our members have agreed to here. If you want to read more on this, we do have a shepherd statement on our website that just talks about uh, financial giving. You can read uh, more on that, several pages uh, explaining kind of our philosophy and how we're thinking about that. Something that was helpful, I thought, I thought it was really helpful. Uh, this book, by the way, uh, just recommended on, on the Ten Commandments in general. This is Jen Wilkin, uh, Ten Words to Live By. Found a number of things helpful in, in Jen's writing on this topic. But it's interesting, in, in this book, uh, she's commenting on, on the Eighth Commandment uh, and giving, same thing as I've done, giving various examples of theft. And then at one point in the, in the, in the chapter, she mentions hotel theft. Um, not, not talking about taking the little shampoo bottles, right? Like everybody, everybody does that. Those are, those are, I think, I assume are meant to be taken. Um, if not, I have some repenting to do. Um, but hotels constantly reporting the loss of towels, uh, the loss of, of, uh, of, uh, robes, even the loss of sheets and pillows. They were taking sheets and pillows. Some hotels even bolt down the TV and the lamps you know there's a story there, right? There's a reason they've done that. Like somebody walked out with a lamp or walked out with a TV at some point. 
Right, so fine example of theft, but here's where she takes it. She says that some of those same people would never think of doing that if they were staying at their friend's house or at a relative's house. Could you imagine being over at your, 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 your in-law's house or a friend's house and you're stuffing sheets into your overnight bag? Like you would, you're putting a lamp in there, like you would never think of doing that. And there's a psychology here to theft that, that the, 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 the more relationship there is, the less we're prone to steal from somebody. The more tangible the, the, the offense is towards another human being, the less likely we are to do it. Right? No, there's a relationship, there's likelihood of getting caught and so on. We know and are known by the owner. Hotels, by contrast, probably won't even notice. Moreover, they're impersonal, intangible entity. Listen to what she writes. This is important for Christians to pay attention to. If we struggle to attribute property rights to a corporation or a hotel because it is disembodied, how might we struggle to attribute property rights to an invisible God? If we mistakenly believe that an unseen God is also unseeing, how might we be tempted to trespass all manner of property rights? I think the hotel example is a fine illustration of theft in and of itself, but I think what she does there is right. It opens us up to the world of the fact that we are more prone to steal the more intangible something seems, the more invisible something seems. That's why we steal from a large corporation or the government or a hotel. She says, be careful. Because God and our relationship to him, an invisible God, how might we also struggle to attribute his proper rights to him? Friends, beware of robbing God. An application for you from this sermon might just be to sit down with a spreadsheet and look at how much income you have and how much you're giving to good gospel work and to this church. One of the, I think one of the, the great things that, that we have uh, in our day and age is, is online giving. But one thing that, that may be helpful for you, there's a, a friend of mine who's written, actually has a PhD in the intersection of theology and tech. He's uh, a web developer at Dallas Seminary. Uh, I remember uh, in a class one time with him, he says, I wish that we all had, I give online tokens, right? So when the plates pass, we'd be like, I give online, I can put a token into the thing, not to show other people, but to show my own heart. It, it, it's so easy. I, I just set something up online, got automatic giving, it's going out. But he says, I, I wish I had a token that we would bring with us and just go drop it in that box over there on the way out as a, as a sign of giving, of releasing, of getting rid of my resources, because that's one of the ways to chip at a heart that wants to grasp and to take is to give, which we'll consider more in just a minute. One of the things that, that we do as a family, we have an online giving set up, but I still, on top of that, uh, put cash. Even if it's not that much, I want to put cash in the box because it, it, it's, a, it's something that my, it, just online, I don't even think about it. But just the act of, of releasing resources, I think is good for our souls to remember that, that we are to be people who, who, are, who are not takers, but people who are givers. Be careful that we're not stealing from God. Now listen, why do I give you all of those examples? Why did Garrett pray through all of those examples in the pastoral prayer? Well, partially it's to help us think of the, the breadth of the problem, right? How, how you can see it playing out in different relationships, in different contexts. But secondly, if it's that pervasive, if it's that pervasive, and again, I'm scratching the surface, 
with ways that, that, that people write on how we steal and how we're stolen from, if it's that pervasive, it has to run deeper in our lives than we typically think. We're talking about stealing from work. We're talking about stealing from school, stealing entertainment, stealing from government, stealing from God. Those things are a huge chunk of our lives. And so if you came in here this morning hearing, you shall not steal, and you're like, oh, sweet, I'm good on that one. But as we walk through those five areas, you said, ah, yeah, it's probably true that I waste about 10 to 15 hours a week at work on social media or fantasy sports. And it's, yeah, it's true that I've cheated on tests or plagiarized on a paper. Sure, it's true that I've illegally streamed TV shows or music. Yeah, I've actually fudged on my taxes a little at different points. Yeah, I've made up things or been dishonest on expense reports at work. It's true that I'm only giving about ten percent, that I'm only giving about two percent or less of my income to the church. But yeah, yeah, you shall not steal. That's not my problem. Friends, I don't know how to break this to you. But you're a thief. What kind of people would need this command? We do. I do. You do. We with our grasping tendencies. We with all of our justifications. We who distrust God. We who disregard our neighbor. And you know what thieves get? Depends. It depends. If we persist in our rebellion, we will get the just consequences of our rebellion. If we persist in our sin and don't re repent and turn back to God, we get the just consequences of that rebellion and turning from God. If we don't know Christ, we get eternal punishment. But if we are found in Christ, so I said it depends. If we are found in Christ, we get a completely different result. Just consequences if we persist in our rebellion. But if we turn to the giver of abundant life, we get mercy. We get mercy. You remember the most famous thief in the Bible? The most famous thief in the Bible? When you think of you shall not steal, your mind should go to, to Golgotha. Your mind should go to the cross and the people hanging on either side of Jesus. Thieves. Jesus was crucified with thieves. And if we turn to him, just like the most famous thief in the Bible, he will look at us and say, today you will be with me in paradise. There is always a chance to turn and to repent from any sin that we have, and Jesus welcomes us with arms stretched wide open. He was crucified with thieves so that he could look at us with all of our thieving tendencies and say, come to me, and you'll get nothing but mercy. Let's consider finally what obedience to this looks like. I'll be brief with these. I have five quick points of application. What does it look like to obey this command? Five of these. Number one, repent and restore. Repent and restore. Depending on what theft the theft is, the restoration piece may or may not be possible, but repenting and turning back to God and charting a new course certainly is. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took the two previous commands that we've had, the command to do not murder and do not commit adultery, and he drove them deeper into the heart to the level of anger and lust. 
It's not just not committing adultery and not murdering. I, I, I tell you, anybody who's lusted after somebody has already broken this commandment. I tell you, anybody who's look, had anger towards somebody has already broken this commandment. Where would he go in your life if he were to do the same thing with your theft? That's where the reflection and the repentance must be for us, to the heart level. Why? And, what, and again, we, we don't have time to go back through all of the ways we might steal, but, but you, you feel some conviction. You know where you're tempted. And ask that question. Why, why, why do I do that? Why am I doing that? Am I distrusting God's care and protection and provision for me? Do I have a, just an utter disregard for my boss? Is it jealousy and envy that I see what somebody else has and I want it? Whether a physical thing or a way of life or standard of living? Is it materialism? Is that why I'm doing it? it is, is it idolatry of leisure? Is it stinginess or greed? Think of what Jesus would, he didn't go into this, this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount in the same way he did with anger and lust. But what, how, what would he say if he did? In what ways is, is, is that the seed of that sin present in our hearts even before we steal something or take something? So repent and restore. Number two, consider the consequences. Consider the consequences. You can write down 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10. There's a, a list of sins that Paul walks through in 1 Corinthians 6. But listen what makes the list. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists a bunch of sins. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's easy for us to look at people who sin in some of those ways and cast aspersions and to judge but friends, realize stealing and greed make the list as well. So consider the consequences. And again, Je Jesus in John 10.10 10 likens the act of theft to wolves in a sheep's pen. It's a characteristic of Satan, not of Jesus. A heart that takes instead of trusts and remains unconvicted and unrepentant is not a light matter. So consider the consequences. Repent and restore. Number two, consider the consequences. Number three, judge your justifications. Judge your justifications. Our theft always comes with a ton of justifications. When I, <laughs> the first time I ever preached through the book of Exodus, I was uh, pastoring in China. Uh, the year before I preached it, I had worked um, my, my visa. I was on a work visa as a, a, a fitness, uh, uh, directing the fitness center at, at the hotel where our church met, actually. And as a, a function of that, I, I was sort of a number of little training programs um, uh, for, for uh, hotel guests and for clients who were coming in. And one of the things is I was starting, I was trying to start a senior adult uh, like rehab program in the pool. And so I bought, uh, I had the hotel buy a bunch of pool noodles. Uh, so I had these pool noodles. Long story short, as I'm writing the sermon in Exodus 20 and thinking about theft, it's a year after I worked at the hotel and I look over in the corner and I see a pool noodle and a jump rope that I had the hotel purchase. Now listen, those pool noodles, first of all, the senior adult rehab program never got off the ground. Um, who knew that these senior adult Chinese men and women didn't want me helping them work out in the pool? Um, secondly, the pool in the hotel was just like this 
Chinese business executive lap pool. There was no shallow end, like no kids were ever, when I would take my kids in, people would yell at us. If a pool noodle drifted into anybody's lap lane, like you would, you would have heck to pay. Like they were, they were, so they actually made me go hide the pool noodles because everybody was getting so mad. They were in a storage closet. Who's going to miss one pool noodle? Nobody even cares. It's a pool noodle. But I took it and it wasn't mine along with that jump rope. So the week that I was preaching this sermon, I had to schlep my way back over to the Sheraton Hotel and walk in. I'm like, I, I took these. I took a pool noodle and a jump rope. And again, they looked at me like, what are you, you're out of your mind. And I was like, clear conscience, I have to give this back to you right now. But, but there are ways I justify, nobody's going to know, nobody cares. I'm the one that ordered those things anyway. Judge your justifications. There's all kinds of ways that we get around this. It's just a little bit of money, it's just a little bit of supplies, just a small little lie on my taxes. Thomas Watson, his commentary on the Ten Commandments, I found this helpful. He says, don't undertake any action for which you can't pray for a blessing. Don't undertake any action for which you can't pray for a blessing. And you can't pray for a blessing upon stolen goods. Whatever the action, however you're gaining, church, can you pray for God to bless that? That action, that activity, the way you're gaining? Watson says, if you, don't, don't do it if you can't pray for God to bless it. I think that's right. Number four, contend for contentment. Contend for contentment. As we've said, one of the reasons that we struggle with the Eighth Commandment is that we desire and we don't have, and so we take, as James would put it. So a big part of our obeying this command, I think, is to fight for contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse, verses 11 through 13 is, is famous for that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 13, famous verse, athletes get it tatted on their arm and people print it up on t-shirts. We have to remember the context of that. The context of Philippians 4.13 is, is Paul saying, listen, I, I know how to be brought low and how to be brought high. I know how to have little and I know how to have a bunch. I know how to have nothing and I know how to abound. I, I've learned, he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of having abundance and having need. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. I, I can do all things. So, so athlete, is that your verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Yeah, it is. If you also include getting blown out by 30 and losing, then yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. You can lose as well as win. You can have nothing as well as everything. Why? Because Christ strengthens you. He says, I've learned the secret to contentment. is that Jesus will strengthen me for the one as well as for the other. He'll give me humility when I have a bunch of stuff, and he'll give me contentment when I've got nothing. And that's enough. I can live with that. Contend for contentment. It's got to be one of the ways we lay the axe at the root of our stealing and our thievery. Number five, finally, generate wealth toward generosity. Generate wealth toward generosity. It's a massively important verse. I'm glad we read it in the service. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. You have it there in your service guide. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Church, do you see the antidote to theft? One of the surest ways to let go of our grasping tendencies and our hearts of thievery is to literally let go of God's money and resources. To work hard at what we do, not stealing time, not stealing money, but working hard at what we do by doing what we can to earn our wages and then not hoarding them, but being generous with it. But note in that verse what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Look at the text again. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see that? Paul doesn't say work hard, and the result of your hard work may be that you have some extra money lying around and resources to share with others and to give. It's close. No, what does he say? He says work hard so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Rather than our giving and our generosity being an afterthought to work, it should be the motive for work, Paul is saying. It's not just, oh, you you happen to have a little bit extra, sure, you can give that away. He says, no, work so that you can give stuff away. Work so that you have something to share with other people. It should be the motive for our work. This, friends, is part of what it looks like to store up our treasures in heaven rather than here on earth where they will rot away and be destroyed. Again, our church covenant, we will cheerfully and regularly support, contribute to the support of the ministry, the needs of the church, and the relief of the poor. Kevin DeYoung, recommend one more book on, <clears throat> on the Ten Commandments. It's called The Ten Commandments uh, by Kevin DeYoung. Really, really helpful resource. Listen to what DeYoung writes. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know that, right? We've heard that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But the reverse is also true. Where your treasure goes, your heart tends to follow. If you put all of your treasure into your stuff, your toys, your man cave, your exercise room, your car, your house, then your heart is going to go there. If you're having a hard time getting your heart in the right place, then send your money ahead of it your heart will follow. When you give generously to the church and to other kingdom-minded causes and organizations, you start finding that your heart is interested in what is happening there. I think that's exactly right. Send your heart, send your money, and your heart will follow. Church, what you got in your pocket? You shall not steal because you need not steal. Our God is generous and just, and his generosity extends in mercy because of his body hung on the cross and his blood shed for us, which we'll see just in a moment here in these elements, the Lord's table. He did all of this for thieves like us, so that when we look to him and say, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he'll look at each and every one of us if we've turned from our sins and trusted in him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.